You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Jim Shella, Mary Dieter, Robin Winston, and John Gregg. And the topic is the life, times, and public service of Frank O'Bannon. Frank O'Bannon was elected governor in 1996 and 2000. He was known as a tenacious consensus builder who quietly pressed others to do the right thing for the people of Indiana, as these folks will attest. O'Bannon was 73 when he was felled by a stroke in September 2003 while attending an international trade meeting in Chicago. Tragically, he died five days later. Mary Dieter worked for him. Robin Winston was one of his political gurus, and John Gregg was his legislative Robin. Is that okay to say if the governor's Batman and the Speaker of the House is Robin? John, do I have that right? <laughs> yes, Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> Our co-host is always for these conversations is Jim Shella. Jim, it's all yours. Good afternoon, Robert. Good afternoon to everyone on the call, Mary and John and Robin. Um, I, I, let's just uh, start out with with um, how Frank O'Bannon uh, came to become governor, because uh, he, he was elected in 1996, but he was a candidate in 1992, I'm sorry, 1988, um, when uh, he was challenged by uh, then Secretary of State Evan Bayh. And uh, it became clear uh, at some point that that Bai was going to be the Democratic nominee, and he invited Frank O'Bannon uh, to become his running mate. and And I think that did a lot for Frank O'Bannon's reputation in the Democratic Party, if not beyond, because it was clear that that he was willing to to be a team player, uh, to be a consensus builder. Um, it, did that, in fact, serve him well over the rest of his career? John, let's start with you. Well, <clears throat> I, th I think it served him very well. Uh, there was no doubt that he was the heir and he would be the next candidate when Governor Bayes' two terms were up. Uh, it showed Frank to be what he was, a gentleman, uh, like you said, a consensus builder. Um, uh, it served him well. It served him well, and it served the citizens of Indiana well. Um, two men coming into public service from two different ways, one starting a career, one ending a career, but both being uh, good governors and good leaders. Yeah, Mary, I think that uh, it, that seemed like an obvious uh, choice from a distance, Evan, by inviting him to, to join the ticket and and. Frank making the, the agreement to do that, but he really thought he could win that race, I do believe. I think he believed that as well, uh, but he had come into the race originally only at the instigation of his wife and a few other supporters. Um, O'Bannon was never one to um, be vain um, or narcissistic. He would uh, he did not see himself immediately as, as governor, even though I think that he always wanted to do the work that was involved. So when it was clear that the young and handsome Bai was on the was uh, coming on the forefront and 
was um, gaining a lot of attention. It was the pragmatic decision on the part of O'Bannon and um, probably in keeping with his personality for his entire career. So then let's, let's skip to eight years later when he, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, runs for governor himself. Uh, he ran against Steve Goldsmith, who was then a very well-known Republican mayor of Indianapolis, well-known statewide and beyond the state's borders. And, and uh, Goldsmith was the favorite in that race. In fact, I, I understand there was polling that showed him up by as much as 18 points uh, at, one st at one stage. How big a surprise in retrospect was Frank O'Bannon's victory? You know, Jim, let me, um, I don't, I think by the time the election happened, it was not a shock. I think those of us insiders, like all of us, know that the lieutenant governor is a household name in political families, but it's not known beyond that. But if you will recall, Frank was kind of like the tortoise and the hare. He just kept plodding along. And then what really, I think, turned the tide that summer um, not to take away anything from Mayor Goldsmith, because Steve's a friend and he's very bright. Uh, the personalities of the two on the stump are as different as night and day. But you had those Indianapolis policemen that had gone on that day of what I call wilding was the term they used back in the 80s. And all hell broke loose. I can't say that. All Hades broke loose after an Indianapolis Indians game. And it really wasn't Steve's fault, but they were Indianapolis policemen. They had been to the city of Indianapolis suite, and that was all that you needed in the state of Indiana that says Indianapolis bad, everything else good. Here you had a man that was a Democrat that was pristine, clean, looked like everybody's grandfather, and was a good, good man. And um, I think by the time election day game you knew he was going to win but back up until that event it was uh it was an uphill hill battle but frank wasn't a quitter either we you know my favorite memory from that race uh it was the the introductory bio ad that frank o'bannon did that, that showed him in a team photo wearing an indiana university basketball uniform um and it as I understand it, the facts are that he was on a practice squad. He never played in a game, um, but it, it defined him uh, as a Hoosier. And, and it's, it, it, it was not something that you could attack. Uh, it, I mean, Mary, beyond that, even, I mean, this is a guy who spent his whole life in Indiana. His family was involved in Indiana politics. It's hard to be more Hoosier than Frank O'Bannon. You're absolutely right. In the same ad that you're referring to, he was sitting on the front porch of a lovely home um, that happened to be in uh, Lockerbie Square in Indianapolis. And it was the quintessential Frank O'Bannon. I'll just add one thing to something John said. Um, I agree with John that the, uh, the wilding incident didn't help Goldsmith, but then Goldsmith also um, handled it very poorly and he made some other really big missteps. Meanwhile, O'Bannon ran a picture perfect campaign uh, people wouldn't necessarily expected it, but it was um, quite well done. And he came across as just what Indiana needed at the time. So he becomes governor. Um, and uh, for the first term, uh, times was good, were good. Um, the, the state had money. Um, and uh, he, was, he was viewed, I know, by some, and, and maybe this is just uh, the view of Republican critics, but it, it, some people saw him as a caretaker governor. Is, is that fair? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, now, just to make it clear, I was a reporter during his first term and I left the state house to go work um, in private sector for a short time and realized that was not where my heart was. And I came back as, as Franco Bannon's press secretary and ultimately as communications director as well. Um, and he most certainly was not a caretaker governor. Um, he had a number of um, wins, legislative wins, including his uh, monumental Energize Indiana economic development plan. He restructured the um, state tax system so that it was fairer to people. It handled, um, without getting too into the weeds here, it handled problems that um, had been uh, brought to light in a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court with prop the state property tax. 
he did other things such as um, started the education roundtable in a bipartisan effort to bring people, all kinds of stakeholders together. I could continue, but I don't want to monopolize this. Well, let me just, let me, let, me, let me pick up from there if you don't mind, because he created this education roundtable, which continued on uh, in subsequent Republican administrations. But that was his management style. When he, when he first set out to address the property tax problem in Indiana, he created a, a property tax commission um, that, that uh, I thought um, had too many members and, uh, and, and uh, uh, really resulted in nothing. I mean, he, 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 he went out of his way to make sure that, that he tried to have everybody on board, um, sometimes uh, to his own detriment. It, you know, go ahead, Mary. He was a consensus builder, no question about that, Jim. And I think he tried to bring in a lot of different voices, but ultimately, um, as I'm sure Robin can attest as well, he wrote that that um, tax restructuring plan. You know, he, I want to talk on his tax plan because we forget that um, part of that did away with something called inventory tax. And if you were a farmer that had fungible goods, which most people would call grain, car dealer, retailer, that was one of Indiana's most dreaded taxes. That was something Frank dealt with. When you talked about his, uh, his education roundtable, remember the whole idea of a community college, which we take for granted today, uh, came from Frank O'Bannon. And I always was incensed over the term caretaker. You know, most of my life, I've lived here all my life. And our governors have normally been people who, and I, had I been fortunate to have been elected, I would have fit the same mold. There are people who are ending a political career rather than starting it. We had an exception with um, Evan Bayh and uh, try as hard. Frank O'Bannon was like most governors. He ended his political career as governor. Evan Bayh started his political career as governor. I mean, it was a stepping stone. Same with Mike Pence. That's not traditional Indiana governors. To call Frank a caretaker was wrong. I mean, if you're using that, and the Republicans at the time and Governor Daniels minions use that as almost, um, uh, as, as almost vile language, the same could be said against Governor Holcomb, that he's just a caretaker governor, but that's not a bad thing. I mean, you're, you're still working and the wheels of government are working and the trains are running on time. I mean, uh, this is Indiana after all. As, as one of Mitch Daniels' political minions, uh, Robin, what's your take on everything that you've heard so far? Well, first off, I'm sorry that I'm late to the huddle. Can you hear me, Robert? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, hello, everybody. Um, you know, I grew up under Frank O'Bannon. I mean, I came to his office on the lieutenant governor's staff and we made it through a race for governor. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to be the state chair for three years while he was governor. And I, you know, the one thing the, the speaker can attest to is he was very respectful of the legislative process. Um, sometimes, sometimes I think some people thought a little too respectful, but he would say, have you checked in with Bob Gardner? Have you checked in with John Gray? Were you better? Would be the, usually the next sentence because he respected that process. He was not a swashbuckler. He wasn't gonna be a guy that believed in those kind of things. One thing he was adamant about, he didn't want programs. Mary, you can maybe attest to this with acronyms. He was not a glitzy, <laughs> give me, you know, a tag. He wasn't into that. He, Cause I would do that work for him sometime. And he'd say, whatever you do, don't give me something that's an acronym. So he didn't, but when you're, when you're looking at Sellersburg and when you're looking at some of the places that he was in, talking about um, community colleges coming to the forefront, he believed in that. It reflected in his appointments to the Ivy Tech board. It reflected in his commitment to making access to education important. So, no, he was not a caretaker. That is definitely, when you look at the sum of all the issues that he put forth, you know, we were fortunate. We were there, speaker, you can... I'm sure it tests to this, um, you know, when we were talking about uh, Conseco Fieldhouse and what was going to go on with workers' compensation and unemployment compensation and 
what was going to go on for the city of Indianapolis, that's not a caretaker governor. That was a governor that was directly involved, directly involved in those discussions and having to go upstairs to play the away game in the, in the general assembly, um, at least on the Senate side to get some things through. So no, I would, I would not define him as a caretaker governor. Well, and while he wasn't flashy, he did understand, um, putting on a political show. Uh, and I would point to his two inaugurations. Uh, the first one, uh, he insisted that it be done outside. And yeah. I can tell you, I still own cold weather gear that I bought for that event. Um, <laughs> I believe, wasn't the high that day a minus one? Um, yeah, and the, the muffle clapping. <laughs> yeah. I, Jim, I've gone through two divorces and I was never as cold as I was on that inauguration day. <laughs> uh, I understand. And, and it, you know, he insisted that it be held outside, uh, despite the conditions. And the reason he wanted to hold it outside was because he wanted to invite fourth grade students, because fourth grade is, is the, the year when you learn Indiana history. And he wanted to have room uh, for all the fourth graders to be there. And I, I do believe some of them made it. Now, uh, four years later, um, he did have the good sense uh, to stage the event inside, but for the first time, he took it away from the, the state capitol. It was done at the Hoosier Dome, uh, and it was filled with fourth graders. So, uh, I, I mean, I think, I think those really, um, you know, the first one maybe, maybe didn't, wasn't a, wasn't a, a five-star event, but uh, they were great events, I think, and, and something to remember him by. We did, we did events for him. Um, we did the, um, after the first State of the Union, you know, this is when you had VIP tickets. The VIP ticket meant you had a ticket, but we called them a VIP ticket. So you got a VIP ticket to come and watch the state of the state and then go into the governor's office afterwards. It was amazing. I mean, we thought maybe 100 people would show up. We had like five or 600 people show up in the rotunda. It was five below zero that night. But uh, Speaker, you know, there are certain parties that don't, don't clap when the governor says certain things, but the strategy was down below in the rotunda, people down there were sitting on their chairs clapping for Frank O'Bannon, um, in addition to what you all would clap for on some of his cut lines in his speech. So he liked that, he liked that, he'd settled down. You know, he didn't want a Robin B. DeMille production as he would call it, says we didn't want to do, you know, Come on, slow down here a little bit. So we couldn't do everything we wanted, Mary, but we were able to create some imagery for him. But um, you know, he did, the guy. The guy was just Indiana all the way through. And through. There's no other word, no other way to describe. It. Go ahead, Mary. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you a story also that I think shows his personality a lot. After his last legislative session, um, he had passed Energize Indiana, and of course, that was really a monumental piece of legislation that had a ton of facets. And as the person that was um, in charge with sort of marketing the governor's accomplishments, I went to him and I proposed that we have forums around the state where we would take um, different uh, leaders from the um, administration and they would talk to people locally about how this legislation would affect their lives. And he was really not in favor of doing this at all at first. And I had to persuade him. I said, Governor, this is not about you. This is about this program. We're going to have other people out there. And he finally came around. And he, after he realized that it was going to be about other people and not just about uh, Frank O'Bannon uh, victory dance, then he agreed to it. And um, But he insisted that we have not six or eight like we on the staff had thought would be appropriate for a man who was 73 years old. No, we had to have one in every one of the districts of uh, the, uh, it, the state was divided into 10 different districts. We had to have one in every one. And he was doing those at the time of his death. So um, he never really, his energy never waned. John, go ahead. I, I wasn't going to, um, I didn't have anything to add. I know that shocked you. <laughs> it does. <It's, laughs> absolutely. Does. But, but, you know, a couple of things when, when you talk about his personality, um, his, his official portrait, he's sitting down. Um, 
he's the only governor I'm aware of that has an official portrait uh, sitting down, certainly among recent governors. Um, he, and he, uh, he started um, when he was lieutenant governor, uh, holding an annual event, uh, and first at his home, and then when he became governor at the governor's residence, where we would have the state house press corps come over. And every time a, a governor makes a visit to a, a, a factory or a school or a small town, they give him gifts, you know, T-shirts and hard hats and baseball caps. And he saved all those up and he'd have a white elephant uh, gift handout. And every every reporter got a white elephant gift, something that had been given to the governor. Uh, and, and maybe most importantly, he served beer uh, because re reporters uh, encountering governors were used to milk and cookies. Um. Is that your idea, Robin? No, that wasn't my idea. It was probably, um, probably Yoda New, probably Tom Yoda New or somebody else. That might, might have been somebody else. Jim, so it might have been Jim, Jim Bannon. Yeah. Jim, Jim. Yes. Why, why don't you explain to our younger listeners, they won't know what a press corps is. <laughs> well, there's something to that. There used to be, there used to be maybe 12 to 15 people who uh, covered the state house on a regular basis, as in daily, and, and, and uh, <laughs> well, I, it's wow. my job to stick up for Nikki Kelly at this point yeah. in the podcast. <laughs> Mary, let me ask you a question. Since, since we have Jim on, and Jim always starts these podcasts, but every time we've done one of these, whether it's been uh, uh, Luger a little bit, but especially the one we did on Joe Kernan, and uh, we recorded one about Bob Orr, uh, we always, I try to have the, uh, a press person on so you could talk about what it's like to deal with Jim Shella from inside the governor's office. So the floor is yours. Well, um, Jim was pretty respectful of the governor. Uh, we had a Friday availability with Jim alone. And um, he usually would tell me the topic that he wanted to cover just so that the governor could be you know, generally versed. He didn't tell us all his questions or anything. And it went well, I think. Um, I mean, we'll have to hear what Jim says about that. But same goes for when we would have availabilities for the whole press corps. And I can attest to what Jim said. Even after I was no longer a member of the press corps, we would have pretty full governor's offices um, or a governor's office filled with reporters. So um, Shella was uh, one of the best reporters in the state house. How how closely did you did you all watch? Indiana Week in Review, or did you not necessarily watch it? Well, I was a sometimes panelist, so I watched it a lot. Um, it was, you know, the show to watch back then. And were you responsible for briefing uh, Mr. Uh, Chairman Robin Winston when he would go on uh, Indiana Week in Review? I did not have to brief Robin. Robin probably could have briefed me. Well, don't say that. Jim Shella was, you know, still is. Look who we're doing on. Look who we're doing on a cold afternoon. He's still hold court. Um, I'll say this. Yeah, I'll say it. What the heck? I don't care. Um, you knew you were going to get coverage if Jim Shella showed up. Let's just say that. Um, some other stations, you know, it didn't matter who came, but if, if Jim Shella came, that gave it the gravitas that it was going to get coverage and it was it was an event that that you hear about later on and and it had the credibility of being a good event having had to stage those um sometimes we'd often wait when we saw jim hester and jim shella coming then we'd queue up and know that we were good to go in a lot of respects sorry to as, as this generation says no disrespect but you know <laughs> sorry sorry to say that to some of the other folks in media Mary, there's, go ahead, Mary, go ahead. I, I just want to push back a tiny bit on what Robin said. I, I think that um, from TV, Kevin Rader and Norm Cox did a really good job for us. Um, mm -hmm. And when I say for us, I don't mean they were carrying our water, but they were fair. Um, Mary Beth Schneider of the Star was fair. Um, Nikki Kelly, a good reporter. Leslie uh, Stedman, good reporters. We, it was different for me to switch sides of the desk and to um, be a spokesperson for somebody. But um, I never, I, it was a very rare situation when I thought we didn't get a fair shake. It happened only a handful of times in my time there. 
those of us who have worked for elected official know who've done media for elected officials know there's a little bit of a tug of war. I mean, you, you want to participate in good stories, not necessarily participate in bad stories, depending on the angle. And you always feel like you deserve more positive coverage than you're getting. How intentional was Governor O'Bannon about the media? Did he feel he was he was good at it, that, that he knew the issues, that he was, you know, avuncular and could could banter with reporters while at the same time fulfilling his role as really the state's top spokesman? Mary? Well, first thing that you should know or remember is that Governor O'Bannon owned a newspaper and he was a newspaper person through and through. He also was an absolute adherent to the First Amendment and freedom of the press, and he welcomed coverage. Um, he really didn't shy away from negative coverage. He understood that was sort of part of the whole um, game, or I shouldn't use that word, perhaps, part of the whole situation. Um, he also was adamant that we were only, always be transparent and open. Um, when I interviewed with him, I asked him a question and I think, I mean, I knew what answer he was gonna give me, but I also kind of wanted to convey to him what I was thinking. And I said, will you ever ask me to lie? And he said, absolutely not. And of course he never did. Um, he, he told us, all, uh, my whole team, that we needed to be transparent. Um, he was that way himself. He was not always the most articulate person, but he was the most sincere person that I've ever known in politics. Well, and along those lines, um, it, him being a, a journalist and a lawyer, when he became governor, he created the first public access counselor, which I think uh, is is still very important uh, to reporters and, and therefore to, to everybody in Indiana. You know, I want to go back, if I may, um, um, there's something Mary said about Frank, Governor O'Bannon, pardon me, being sincere. And, you know, she's right. Frank was not that William Jennings Bryan orator. He wasn't the Evan By or the uh, Mike Pence speaker. But his sincerity came across to people of all ages, all income levels, all sections of Indiana. Um, Larry, the cable guy, would have some type of comment about it. I'm not sure what it is. You know, you can, you can teach him how to speak better, but you can't teach him sincerity. You've just got to be sincere. And uh, you can say you're humble and not be humble. But Frank, that's a little big gig, by the way, for some of you. You figured that out. But Frank O'Bannon was sincere, and everybody knew it. Everybody, even his, even the people that weren't fans knew that Frank was a sincere man. You are like when we would go, when we would go, go out ahead. in the state, Robert, uh, to do events. He really, really, I remember at that point, Chris Kirshner was at uh, the station in Terre Haute, and we were over there for some housing announcement, and we had finished the announcement, and she got there and said, "Could I talk?" He was then lieutenant governor. Could I talk to him and ask him some questions? And he stopped, spent time. She took her pad out. In those days, you know, had the camera person there. And he gave her as much time as she wanted. He was always that way, no matter who wanted to see him. He'd stop for reporters. In those days, you know, you took photos. Some of them were Polaroids. Some of those, I mean, people weren't showing you the photo on their, on their phone. But he took time uh, to do all those things. So um, you're right. I remember when we made major announcements, he would always say, get the release out, but also call somebody, Mary Beth or somebody, and let them know that this is going to be coming because the newspaper cycle was different than electronic. So, yeah, you're right, Mary. I mean, he was adamant that everybody be above board and honest, very much like what we're seeing uh, in the Joe Biden administration right now in the White House. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our topic today is the lifetimes and career of Governor Frank O'Bannon. Our guests are Mary Dieter, 
John Gregg, Robin Winston, and our co-host for all our fun political discussions, Jim Shella. John, I want to ask you a question real quick, Speaker Gregg. You were Speaker, started, I think, in 1996, right, just when uh, Governor O'Bannon was elected over Steve Goldsmith. What was it like to work with him from a legislative perspective, especially since he had that experience? Governor, o Governor O'Bannon had the experience of being a state senator. Sure. Governor O'Bannon um, was really loved by the legislators, Democrats and Republicans, as an individual. Um, they knew he was one of them. Um, Evan had not been. Governor Orr had just been for four years, but Frank had toiled in the legislature 28 years before becoming lieutenant governor. And uh, people identified with him. Robin Winston made a beautiful comment earlier that Frank probably paid too much deference at times to the legislators, particularly the Senate Republicans. Um, and I just to be candid, and this does not apply to Bob Garton. Bob was always respectful of the office. But there were a few people I felt like were not always as as um, did not always treat the office and did not always treat Governor O'Bannon with the respect he deserved. And he just ignored it. He knew what they were doing. He just ignored it because he was such a, a gentleman. But he understood that process frontwards and backwards. And he realized it, it, it was a process. And uh, he had the patience of Job in dealing with me and in dealing with the, uh, and with Pat Bauer and with uh, Manweiler and Bosma and Larry Borst and Maury Mills, Bob Garton. The Senate went through a lot of members. They, of course, they weren't very strong in numbers. I think there were more than the two members they've got now, but, um, um, you know, but he was always very respectful of the legislature and, uh, and he was fun to work with. I mean, at, when Mary had said something about, you know, like something was done. I remember after his first section, when he was happy with me, he called me big John in private. Um, and it's not because I'm tall, but he, we decided we were going to go out to eat. It was about two 30 in the morning. And so we loaded up with the state police and about 20 people. And we went to the old IHOP at 16th and Meridian. And, uh, you know, the state police were beside themselves because at that time of the night, we were the only people in there that had had a bath and weren't drunk. <laughs> But he was just, you know, he got in there, people recognized him, he talked to all of them, just what a, what a nice guy. I mean, um, and he was a great governor. And don't forget, his, at the end, 9-11 happened, and he did the 900 megahertz communication system, something we still use where all of the local law enforcement, EMTs, ambulance people, National Guard, they can all talk with one another. Um, this was all a Frank O'Bannon uh, project that came out of 9-11. So, I mean, uh, we're still dealing with things that Governor O'Bannon set up for us. Speaker Greg, let me ask you a quick question. You mentioned his name. Let's follow up just quickly. President Pro Tem, Bob Garton, Republican, longtime senator. How was that relationship between the two of them and did you ever feel like you were the one negotiating with those two or was the governor negotiating with you two? No, you know, I will tell you, Bob Garton's a perfect gentleman. I mean, he is. I, I didn't ever go fishing with Bob, but Bob's somebody I still keep in touch with and like a lot. If anything, Frank probably should have taken a stick to Bob and some of his Senate colleagues a time or two and goaded them on a little bit. Uh, I see Mary nodding in that, but uh, <laughs> um, if, 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 if I had ever told him a time or two, I do think I said, governor, you're the governor, you know, they're in charge of the Senate. You don't have to deal with this, you know, tell them what it is and move on. But he was a consensus builder um, to his own detriment at times. Well, let me tell you a story about the only time I got scolded by the governor. It was pretty early in my tenure as his press secretary. And um, the governor had announced some legislation that he intended to pursue, pursue fairly far down the line and already 
uh, there were several Republican leaders who I won't name who were saying that it was going to be dead on arrival. And a reporter or two who interviewed me and I said that they were being obstructionists, which they were being obstructionists. And they complained to the governor that I'd called them obstructionists. And he took me aside and he says, probably shouldn't do that anymore. And so that was the, the harsh criticism of it. But he, he just was, he did not want uh, his staff certainly speaking out a term like that. And I learned my lesson. You Go know, ahead, Jim. Well, Mary, you, you mentioned early on that uh, <clears throat> when Frank O'Bannon first ran for governor in 1988, it was at the urging of his wife, Judy. How, how involved was, was Judy in what went on uh, on the second floor? You know, she didn't show up all the time in our office or anything like that. Uh, Jim, but I really had the, the distinct sense that um, the governor and Mrs. O'Bannon were soulmates and that he would bounce ideas off her. She was um, outwardly maybe a typical political wife of the times, but I think that those of us who were around recognized that she was powerful and really smart and had lots of good ideas and also was pretty politically astute and savvy and thus could be a good advisor to him. But I mean, she didn't come around telling us how to do our jobs or anything like that. No, yeah, and I, she remained in, in the traditional role of a first lady, but she had a higher profile than most. She did, she did. Yeah. And the reason we have a state museum today, and the reason that it's the Frank and Judy O'Bannon Hall is because of Judy O'Bannon. Time and time again, the Republicans would come in and say, we need to reduce money for the state museum, state museum planning. And the governor would say, "You give, you go ahead and pick up the phone and talk to Judy about that." Um, hey, nobody ever, nobody ever did. And the I state wanna, museum is built, is I built wanna, today, is built today. Yes, I'm sorry, I, Speaker. No, I'm sorry, Robin. I was so excited you said that. That is the absolute truth. It was the end of Frank's first session, and the state museum had fallen out of the final budget. So you've got myself, Bob Garton, Larry Borst and Pat Bauer down in the governor's office with Tom New and Kovach. And uh, we're going in and Bauer is telling us the museum's out and, he, and Manweiler was in there too. Anyway, nobody but Larry Borst, we were all lined up, there were seven of us going in there and we all knew that it was out. It was kind of like, hey, it's out, we're tired, we wanna go home. And that's exactly what happened. We go through the budget Tom News checking all the things off and we're saying them and Frank's nodding and saying, yeah, good, good, you know, all of this. And we're all done. And he says, what about the museum? Bauer, <laughs> Bauer leans up and said, well, governor, he said there wasn't any support for the museum, so it didn't happen. At that time, Larry Borst comes in and says, governor, he said, I don't know if they're done or not, but we got to add the state museum back in. He said, I just got off the phone with Judy. He said, we're putting the museum back in. <laughs> so you are absolutely right. I mean, that museum's there because of Judy and because of Frank. It's not there because of anything else. We, we should note that uh, as a proud IPS uh, alum, uh, Judy O'Bannon is a member of the IPS Hall of Fame. Right through the Shore Ridge High School. Robin, what was it like being Governor O'Bannon's political wingman? And if you could please talk a little bit about the 2000 election. Republicans had high hopes with David McIntosh, a congressman coming back to Indiana to run for governor. And uh, Frank O'Bannon ran a pretty darn good campaign. Uh, was it ever in doubt to you? And was was the governor willing to do what it took politically to get the job done? Well, yeah, it was in doubt to us. I mean, my God, you had George Bush on the ballot in Indiana. It was, it was a presidential race. Uh, David uh, McIntosh was the, you know, the celebrity of that. I will tell you that what we did in Muncie is we found out his home address, Robert. And we made sure that we went door to door and put Frank O'Bannon yard signs all the way up and down the street on his way out of his subdivision to the main road. So when you when you came out your front door, you saw Frank O'Bannon signs all the way out to the main road. And I think that's university. 
I don't know the exact number, but that's where he lived. <laughs> Not that I kept track of it, but that's where he lived. Anyways, um, so, um, and the governor, the governor, I remember one, one night we landed in Muncie in our big King Air and, and, and Macintosh landed like in a Bravo or something. I don't know, it's small. And the governor got out, let me get out first. So there's kind of like big plane, small plane. Um, that's when we compared planes. Um, so, you know, that was a big deal, but he was very competitive. Governor is very competitive. Uh, remember, we did the sales tax on gasoline. And uh, right at, at that point, I think it was a Shell station at 16th and Illinois. Where we announced that we were going to... 21st and Illinois. ...not allowed to go up. And that helped win that race a lot. At that, that point, we were... It was not as close. But after we did that, our internal polling showed that, that those numbers went up. And then once the numbers went up, he, he um, got more of a bounce in his step and wanted to take the message on down the line. I don't know the exact figures, Robert and everybody, but even in spite of that, I mean, I think McIntosh still raised about nine and a half, maybe 10 million. We raised a little over 10 million as the incumbent governor. Um, but then we, you know, we just took our message out there. We carried Delaware County, Denny Tyler, all the people in Delaware County were proud of that, but we carried Delaware County. I think we carried the entire second congressional district um, because that was a goal. And, uh, and we did that. So, so yeah, it was good being that wingman. I'll just tell you one, Frank O'Bannon, well, I can tell you a lot of them, but I'm not going to dominate this. So we came up with an idea of this real high tech thing called garbage bag yard signs, garbage bag yard signs, no more poly code. This is our new thing. So Frank Lewis O'Bannon did not believe in. So I, I had to meet him at his house. This is Lieutenant governor running for governor. I had to meet him at his house. And he took a hose out and he turned the hose on full power and sprayed the sign perpendicular to the ground for five minutes to see if the ink would come off. And it did not come off. Unfortunately, <laughs> the sign said, unfortunately, the sign said, I think Montgomery for attorney general. Someone let the word know, go to our candidate for attorney general that there was a sign in Franco Bannon's yard for some somebody else for attorney general so that candidate on our team called and said am i okay everything all right well, because we were using a sign just and he also put one in john goss's yard on one side of town and and his administrative assistant cindy's yard on another side of town to see if the sun would fade him because it was such high tech stuff in those days but ultimately he agreed to it. we printed about eighty thousand and got him in the ground Maybe, um, maybe I should do a podcast on the outside, outsized importance of yard signs to <laughs> political candidates. Don't, so don't. That's, that's what I say. So that, that was the best I could be as wingman. He, he was outstanding to work for it, and um, he relished being a candidate. He loved meeting people, much to his detriment, as much as people criticize about, about you know, being you know, with the legislature. There were candidates who said, I can't believe Frank and Judy O'Bannon were here first. And Frank and Judy O'Bannon were the last people to leave. But that kind of was his hallmark when, you know, you're in Crawford County, you're at the buffet, you've had two chick, two drumsticks, mashed potatoes, green, you're full. And he still would be sitting there talking about what's going on in Moringa and how are the caves going. So he would stick around. And I think that conveyed not something he made up, but that was the way he did. What was his relationship like? At, let's start with you, Mary. And then Jim, obviously, because I know you covered this. What was his relationship like with Joe Kernan? I mean, Frank O'Bannon was a veteran himself. Of course, very few people have served their country at the level that Joe Kernan did. God rest his soul. But he was a veteran and was a senator. And there was a lot of, of participation in government at various levels. And he chose Joe Kernan to be his running mate in 1996 what was the process of choosing him and how did they work together i think i'll leave to robin the process of how he chose him but what i saw as a reporter and then ultimately saw when i worked for o'bannon was that um he brought kernan into a lot of decisions that with all due respect to senator by um, he had not been, or O'Bannon had not participated in as Lieutenant Governor. Um, I think he recognized that Kernan was a very good politician, a very good retail politician, 
and it, he had a lot of um, ability to sell things. And um, so he did, he included him in a lot of decisions. They seemed to, um, their relationship developed. It was a strong relationship um, and he grew closer and closer. I would maybe compare it to Obama, Biden, where you bring in somebody who has experience and has knowledge and you actually use it. It's my understanding that, that um, Frank O'Bannon had to do quite a recruiting job on Joe Kernan, that Kernan uh, maybe even turned down the opportunity a couple of times. Uh, that, that's somebody he wanted uh, to be his running mate and his political partner. And uh, Kernan was happy in South Bend. Um, and he was, uh, he was convinced that he could do more for his state. And obviously, we all know now that he did. Joe Kernan was a perfect uh, lieutenant governor for uh, Governor O'Bannon. Um, first off, you're right, Robert. I mean, no one can doubt his commitment to our, our country, POW, uh, for our nation, and then come back and serve the people of South Bend. But he also, you know, had had a, a good humor streak about him. Um, not every meeting was dour and serious. Uh, they weren't, you know, that wasn't it. So he also added that uh, uh, capability to the team. The other thing is the guy fundamentally uh, was smart about government. Uh, he had been a mayor. He understood the nuances of local government and was beneficial there. And last but not least, he was scrappy in, on the campaign trail. Um, you know, when we went on our, our world famous bus tours, you know, it was Joe Kernan would bounce off, bound off the bus and be ready to speak no matter where we were and had boundless energy and people loved him. So Great teammate, great respect. Governor always respected him. You had to watch out for staffs because, you know, you have the people that are pretty smart. And if you don't believe it, ask them, they'll tell you they're on teams. So you had to make sure that everybody balanced uh, what was going on in the best interest of their elected position. And can I throw something out that Robin, and for those that don't know Robin Winston, one of the great all-time party chairmen of either party, um, and did a lot for legislative candidates and strengthening uh, our Democrat Party back when we still had a strong Democrat Party in Indiana. When you were talking about Frank being the last person to leave Crawford County, I remember that every election cycle, uh, there'd be the discussion between you and him and Frank needing to go down to Southeast Indiana for the poll raising. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> okay, Robin, here you go. Here's your chance to get even. Oh boy. Well, first off, Lee Hamilton said you got to be there. Um, so there's a poll. There's a poll raising some something down in southeastern Indiana. The governor absolutely wanted to go. Everybody told him he had to be there. You'll lose the election if you're not there. So we're, we're doing the number crunch. And I said, all right, let's break this down. How many people are going to be? 5,000. All right, 5,000, about 20% going to be from Ohio. 20% not registered to vote because they're too young. 20% not, not, I mean, they're registered, their voting age, not registered to vote. So you're left with what, 40%, so 2,000 people. One half not going to vote for you anyway. The other half are already proposed to vote for you. <laughs> And what do you think we did? We went to the St. Leon poll raising every year. And and they <laughs> pronounce come and go with me. And they pronounce so, it. It looks like St. Leon, but if you're from there, they pronounce it St. Lean. St. Lean. See? See, the kid doesn't know how to do that after all this time. So St. Lean, but he was he he was there. I think that was um, and one of his heroes, one guy, we lost him last week. Spence Schnatter. Oh, um, absolutely. Who uh, was a parliamentarian. Check this guy out. Talk about humble. Never mentioned, at least never did. I didn't hear every word that he led his team to the state basketball championship, although he did. Madison, Madison Cubs. Went to Yale, served in the military, and he was up there with, with Frank O'Bannon as the parliamentarian over the Senate. Um, so he probably behind our back was lobbying for the for the poll for the poll raising too. So uh, Robin, I spoke, never missed it. Robin, I spoke with ahead, Spence's. John. I spoke with Spence Schneider's daughter Sunday night, 
And um, uh, the idea of Frank and Spence Schneider just make me uh, make me smile. You know, Frank O'Bannon also played basketball with former Indiana National Bank chairman Tom Miller. Now, Tom Miller and his wife endowed the chair at Indiana University in history, the Dr. James Madison, a friend of all of us, uh, is the professor emeritus of the Miller chair. So another Frank O'Bannon tie, another Thomas Miller, Spence Schneider tie in, in that case. And uh, I do think, by the way, uh, in 20... In 2020, I think there were seven cats, two dogs, and three people at the St. Leon uh, pole raising. <laughs> Word is that the dogs were drunk. <laughs> Robin, let me ask you a question about something you mentioned a little bit earlier, and then I want to turn it over for the last uh, five or ten minutes to Jim so he can talk about the governor's passing and, and how that was covered and, and handled. It was shocking to all of us, obviously. I've said this before when I've talked, uh, had talks with my uh, fellow Republicans, that the the recent, I say almost twenty year dominance of the Republican Party in Indiana should never be taken for granted, that it didn't happen by accident, and that it came on the heels of sixteen years of significant Democrat victories and control across the state. When you include Bart Peterson as mayor of Indianapolis control of the house four consecutive gubernatorial victories uh, you had a evan by become united states senator congressional wins in other words for 16 years roughly you had a situation where the democrats in indiana were just simply on fire was that surprising to you was that something that you knew and maybe john can answer this as well but you knew would when, when it was happening like hey this, this is kind of a miracle, or, or it's basically we did this through hard work. What was your thought as you were going through it? Because, I mean, now if you told someone, a Republican or Democrat who has been involved in politics for five or six, seven years in their 20s, they probably just wouldn't believe it until they looked it up. Well, I always, when I speak to Democratic groups, I say I was proud to be state chair of the Democratic Party. And right after President Roosevelt got off the phone, I accepted his ability to be the state chair of our party. But, you know, just to give him some reference that it was quite some time ago. Um, it was fantastic. Um, it seemed, it wasn't fun. No, it wasn't fun, I'll tell you that. There were times when, as in the words of Mike McDaniel, I didn't realize that I had two words before my first name and last name a lot of times, but I did as, as, chairman, as chairman then. Um, it was tough because you're looking people in the face saying you're running, particularly you, Speaker, more than anybody on this call would understand herding all those cats uh, to try to come back to win a majority as, as you did um, as Speaker. It's hard making that decision. You're making a financial decision, Robert. You're making a deployment decision of where you send the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, Speaker, uh, whoever you're sending at that point, financial decisions or where you spend money. But we got everybody's ego in a drawer as best we could, we just built a bigger drawer, but we got everybody's ego in a drawer and we tried to work together then. We did have something at State Party called People Are Amazing. Each week we nominated somebody who, <laughs> amazing would be a nicest word I could say, who truly demonstrated why we had to work together. And uh, we did that. But, I, but you gotta remember it was, I, we had people like Bob Pastor. You know, you're in his office, there's a book over there. You look at the book signed by John F. Kennedy. And another book signed by Robert Kennedy in his office. Just, oh, well, I'm just mayor of East Chicago. Oh, your, L your LBJ was your JJ speaker for the young Democrats of East Chicago? I mean, <laughs> I mean, so you had that. You had Birch Bayh was still there. That's what I, I'm trying to tell uh, people that are going to succeed, obviously, by several chairs. You got Lee Hamilton walking around here that passed civil rights, voting rights, and all those things. Be proud of it. You, you had Birch Bayh, Title IX, reason that there's so much proliferation of women's sports, Title IX, and fairness in college, Evan By reforming the license branch, Frank O'Bannon community colleges, Joe Donnelly voting for uh, the Affordable Care Act that benefits so many people. Our we buddy Andy Jacobs. Don't forget Andy Jacobs. I won't forget Andy Jacobs, and then I will not forget Julia Carson. I mean, That's right. we have enough to, to take the, the, the show on. But I will say one thing about Frank O'Bannon. He... Um, 
I've heard you say it before, Robert, I heard you say it on this thing. He instilled in all of us who served with him a responsibility to serve. And it meant that whether it was the doorkeeper of the house that you, Jimmy, I think was his name, speaker, um, that you respected Jimmy when you walked on to the house floor. Um, it made you, one senator you didn't mention, Joe Harrison. Um, it, he would make sure that you spoke to Senator Harrison in the hall, that you didn't carry any animosity towards his former colleagues. He would never allow that to happen. And then, you know, just, just he came to work, Mary, and you saw it. He came to work, as Jimmy said earlier, sitting down. That's, he approached the job as a job. He came to work with his trench coat on and his briefcase, making his way up the stairs and his rock ports um, that he was proud to let you know he got at stout shoes and <laughs> make, his, make his way up there. And he'd take the stairs and think, because of course he was walking treadmill in those days. So he'd take the stairs up to the second floor if he was going up there or wherever he was going, but he was genuine. And, and when you look at people kicking doors down and throwing flags, I wonder today, I told my wife the other day, I wonder what, Frank O'Bannon would think of what he saw. Um, I'm sure he'd be re repulsed by it. So we were fortunate to work for him. He made me and others a better person. Um, and I think that's probably the thing that he instilled the most in Indiana was how he made our state better. Jim, floor is yours. Take us home. <laughs> well, yeah, Frank O'Bannon, uh, of course, uh, died with a little more than a year left in his second term. Um, and I can say, speaking for myself, that, you know, in 40 years of covering television news, uh, that was the most difficult week that next week that, that I've ever experienced, because uh, it, it was the first time that it happened in, uh, I believe, 100 years. Um, there was uh, a lot to be done. It's, it's, it's easy to swear Joe Kernan in on the night of Frank O'Bannon's death. It's tough to keep the government running, uh, to, to do what was in effect a transition from one administration to the next um, and, and to know what, what the rules are. And, and um, we were, you know, in those days we were um, breaking into programming to announce significant events. And it seemed like we were doing it twice a day. Um, it, there, there was news of one kind or another uh, popping up um, every day and, and more often than that. But I guess the, the, the thing that I remember is how at, he died on a Saturday. Um, the following Friday, uh, his funeral service was held outside the state house in the same spot where his first inaugural was held. And again, I thought, uh, you know, as these things go, it, it was a, a wonderful political show. It, it, it uh, paid tribute to the man, paid tribute to the job that he had done. Um, and and it, it showed that uh, our system does work. Um, you know, when Frank O'Bannon was uh, a candidate, when he when he got elected and reelected, he 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 used to like to use the phrase "forming a government." He would talk about forming a government. And and on, on, when I first heard that, I thought that uh, you know it, it's it's not really like that. He's trying to make something more out of this than what it is. But then when you find out that he dies in office and you really have to reform a government, suddenly it made a lot more sense. I mean, it, it, uh, this stuff's not as easy as it looks from the outside. And uh, um, I think that, that what happened uh, I, the week that, that Frank O'Bannon died and in the, in the, the, the months afterwards um, was a, a real testament to everyone involved, both in the O'Bannon administration, the Kernan administration, um, and in the state of Indiana. Mary? Well, I would echo what Jim said, that that, had, that was um, the most difficult two weeks, I'll call it for me, um, uh, of my professional career, my entire life. Um, the, starting with the governor's stroke on a Monday, his death on the Saturday, and then um, continued as um, our staff, Donna Imus and others um, planned the funeral. And then there was another funeral that was held in court. And it was, um, 
it, we, we were very um, determined in the office to carry on government and to show people that government would continue regardless of the personalities that were in charge. Um, it, I took it as a personal uh, charge to do what I thought Frank O'Bannon would want me to do, and that is to be transparent. We were a little bit hampered because of HIPAA. You, you can't just tell people's um, health situation without getting in trouble with the federal government. Um, but we were as transparent as we could be. We told people, we told the press corps what was going on as soon as we knew it um, and did that because uh, we really believed that Frank O'Bannon would want that to happen that way as well as all of the function of government. Robin? You know, you know we, lost, we lost a guy that, that gave us all to, to Indiana. Um, I never forget uh, when the uh, missing man formation came over and the, the uh, Air Force jet peeled away. I think that's when it really sunk in that that was it. Um, even on his last mission for the state of Indiana, he was trying to do things like create jobs and bridge uh, the divide between us and, and East Asia. Uh, he carried himself with, with class all the way through. And, you know, there was a, it was a hard week. You know, it's extremely hard. You know, Mary, you were at ground zero. You at least had some information. I was reacting to what I had seen that you all were reporting or people calling me up and telling me what was going on. But, you know, the, the legacy lives on. Um, please go to Corden and see the, the, uh, the statue of Frank O'Bannon sitting down there. Um, please, please make sure that you go see O'Bannon Woods. Please come up to Gary, Indiana and see the Frank O'Bannon office building for state government. Uh, O'Bannon Elementary over in Hammond, the O'Bannon Cardinals over there. So he left the, you know, is, is that often said, what is it? You, you make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. This guy gave it all and he gave it all for Indiana. Speaker Greg, I left office voluntarily in 2002, two years before Frank passed away. Ten days before the cerebral hemorrhage or stroke that fell him in Chicago, I'm sitting in my office in Vincennes University where I'm the interim president. And it's about four o'clock and the phone rings and my secretary runs in just all a tither and says, Governor O'Bannon, the phone, and wants to talk to you. So I picked up the phone, and I cherished the last conversation I had with Frank, not knowing that in 10 days, his work, to quote from the Old Testament, his work would not yet be finished, yet his column was broken. You know what he talked to me about? We talked about state government. We talked about some. Um, we talked about some things going on in Indiana, and then he asked me about how I liked being out of politics. And I told him I didn't miss it. I'd never go back. So much for that. Uh, I didn't go back. <laughs> but <laughs> but what Frank did say was he said, you know, he says I'm having a ball, but he said I can't wait to get back to Corden. He said get back to the farm, get back to the barn, get out to the woods be around the grandkids. I mean, it was the human side of Frank O'Bannon. It was saying, John, I love being governor, but in a year from now, I'm going to be back home doing what people do when they're retired. And I, and I never forgot that. It had no idea that when he told me that, that he would be robbed of that joy. And that's, that's always hung with me and hung heavy when I thought about Frank working like a dog for basically, you know, basically 40 years to make the state of Indiana a better place. And then at the last moment, uh, those years of enjoyment being snatched away from him. Jim, do you have a final thought about the governor covering him and well, the well, on the podcast? Yeah. Let me just finish with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When, when, when you talk about him being in, in Corden, you know, he and Judy, uh, took an old barn and turned it into a home down in Corden and, and uh, uh, at one point invited the media to come down and see it. And I was uh, standing with the governor looking out the front window uh, of, of this barn home um, that was on a road uh, that was a dead end. Um, 
but that road was freshly paved and there was a road crew out there mowing it uh, as we were looking. And I, and I looked at the governor and I said, boy, it's nice to be governor. Uh, and he didn't miss a beat. He said, you take it back. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he, he said, the only reason that road's in the shape it's in is because we got a casino here in Harrison County. Every road in this county is paved. He, he didn't want <laughs> treatment, and he didn't want anybody to think he got special treatment, um, and he belonged in Harrison County. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our topic today has been the lifetimes and public service career of Governor Frank O'Bannon. Thank you, Jim Shella, Mary Dieter, Speaker John Gregg, and Robin Winston for joining us today. It was a wonderful discussion about a completely terrific Hoosier. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.